If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn to our primary passage this morning in the Word of God to John chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, this would be on page 886 to John chapter 1. Now last week we began a series, if you weren't here you should know that this is coming a second in the series, looking at what is one of the most important questions that anybody could ask, and it will shape your life to give much thought to this question. The question was raised out of Psalm 8, what is man? What is human nature? What is our destiny? What is our purpose in the day to day? And last week we focused especially on how The answer you give to that question has consequences. It has consequences for how you view yourself. It has consequences at a societal level for how people treat one another. So we began to look at that a little bit about why it matters to explore this question in some detail. I want to underscore that a little bit. Maybe you were here about a year ago when we were visited by a guest pastor, Reverend Stan Way. I didn't know it at the time when he visited, but he actually wrote a book on this subject. He wrote a book that I've now read. It's valuable. It's called What It Means to Be Human. Again, you might say, I am a human. I know all that I need about being a human. But clearly, people make different kinds of choices that reflect very different conclusions about what a human is. And in his book, he connects that question to issues especially involving technology. It's obvious that there has been a rapid increase in technical knowledge, especially in the past 150 years, like the world never saw before it. Really, it is genuinely different. And that has to be underscored to children who have come into this world and understandably assume this is the way it has been. It has not been this way. Even just look at what a TV looks like now versus what it looked like 50 years ago. Everything changes and the increase is very rapid in terms of this technical knowledge. If you're not intentional about how you think about people, you tend to absorb a view of man that is accustomed to whatever is going on in society around you. During the early 20th century and at the end of the 19th century, as machines were becoming such a big deal, there was a tendency to look at people as mechanisms, machines, and to look at society in terms of machine metaphors. In the present time, there is an increasing technical view of human beings. I've even heard it described in actual academic literature to describe cells in terms of software, to think about their structure and makeup as software combined with hardware. There's obviously analogies there that make sense, but is that all that we're dealing with? There's a tendency for the reigning developments to dictate how we conceive of ourselves. That has implications. Now, why does it matter to ask that question? For a number of reasons. One, because empirical sciences, and don't get me wrong, the empirical sciences are precious. They're a gift from God. Think of all the things you would not have that you enjoy every day as a benefit of empirical science. But empirical science is not suited to everything equally. The sciences are great at asking questions about processes that we can reproduce about physical things, about phenomena out in the world that we can touch or manipulate. They are not designed by God to address every sort of question that we might have. And that becomes especially evident in things like, for instance, biomedicine. 
I am not an expert on all things, and I'm not going to get into all things in this series beyond what we can draw clearly from the scripture. We are Christians, and God has spoken sufficiently to address some of those matters. Science wasn't designed in its empirical form to address some of the questions. Let me give you an example of one of those. We have a good idea now of how to modify genes of unborn human beings. On the one hand, that opens up opportunities like potentially removing disorders, helping a child before the child's even born to not have certain disorders or diseases. On the other hand, it has raised a question which for many people is an open question, if not one they've already made up their mind for. Perhaps we can change things about a child that are benign, things that aren't about protecting the child from harm, where, for instance, if we wanted, we could determine, you know, you want to have a kid, what eye color do you want? What hair color do you want? What skin color do you want? What shape of eyes do you want? These are things that people are interested to develop because people like control, people like profit, and there's definitely an area to profit there or to have some say over what your child will be. But it raises a question about whether or not it is humane, literally human, to dictate that for our children. How much control do we exert? Another example of this, to push it even further, the development which is in progress of artificial wombs. You may have heard about this, maybe you didn't. This has been advancing for several years. In 2017, it was announced that scientists had successfully taken a lamb at the two-thirds stage of gestation, transferred it from the mother sheep, put it basically into an artificial womb, a plastic bag, and finished raising it. The hope of some people, this is real, the hope of some people is that perhaps at some point we could put the entire process of human gestation in. That sounds like science fiction. But think about the incentives of it and what it means about human beings, what it suggests about what it means to be human. You've always thought being human is being born of your mother. Not everyone thinks it should be that way or is that way. This is attractive, for instance, to men who want as much as possible to circumvent the need of relying upon a woman in the process of having a child. Or women who would like to have an infant, but they would wish to avoid some of the natural things that go along with pregnancy. All of that, we can follow that rationale. This has been raised as a potential way to address, in some governments, the need for people, for workers. Who is the authority? Who's the father and mother in that situation? I don't profess to have a final answer about every possible circumstance, but Leon Cass, who's a medical doctor, who has raised concerns about this in the past, he talks about the dehumanizing tendency of pressing forward with technology without asking questions that science cannot address of itself that are really philosophical and moral and spiritual. He says this, Bioethicists are by and large unconcerned with the positive good of keeping human procreation human, of upholding the difference between procreation and manufacture, between begetting and making. Few seem to care about what it means for society increasingly to regard a child not as a mysterious stranger given to be cherished as someone to take our place, but rather as a product of our will, to be perfected by design and to satisfy our wants. What a human is matters, not only for you, but the way that you will play a role in shaping the legislation of this country. You are citizens of either this or another. We have a say. And even if we receive no say in the broader society, if it were to come to that, we as Christians make decisions based on the word. 
What does the word say a human being is? This morning we begin at the most fundamental aspect of what a human being is. And it's stated here for us in the Gospel of John. Hear with me the word of God in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let's ask the Lord to bless this. Heavenly Father, we call upon you to work through your word. Renew us as your scripture promises. Renew our minds. Cause us not to think in the way of the world. Peel away the development, the plaque that comes simply with living in a society that largely does not know or desire you. We ask for you to be glorified as you change us and even shape us, Lord, in such a way that we can be boldly winsome in laying these things before others. Such things are too high for us, but you are a God who condescends. Work in us now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At some point, I imagine most of us have heard a certain phrase. The phrase is the self-made man. Self-made man. If you're maybe a child here, you don't know what that is. Basically, the idea is this. Somebody starts at the very bottom in terms of maybe how much money they have, what their education is, what their opportunities are in society. They start at the very bottom, and through sheer self-effort, they work their way up until they get to the top. The self-made man. That idea has a certain value. Some people appreciate that, especially in this culture. America has a history of liking the idea of the self-made man. But one person who was regarded as a kind of self-made man actually pushed against it, George Matthews Adams. He lived in the 20th century. He founded a number of newspapers, wrote a lot of books, very successful. And people talked about him as though he was a great example, starting from nothing, working his way up to the top. And he said, no, that is not the case at all. No one is a self-made man. Everyone is the byproduct of thousands of individuals and of a culture impressing upon them. In fact, he put it this way. Everyone who has ever done a kind deed for us or spoken one word of encouragement to us has entered into the makeup of our character and our thoughts as well as our success. The idea of being a self-made man is a myth, or woman, if you will. And it becomes even more mythical when you apply it to not just your success in this life, but when you apply it to your existence. Who is self-made? Which one of us had a conference with our future parents to dictate to them whether or not we could be brought into this world? We are not self-made. And when you look at it from the heavenly vantage, it's even more the case. The scripture declares in Isaiah 66 verse 9 that it is God who opens the womb. He may use a variety of means, but if he doesn't grant the spirit, there is no person. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, the Lord declares to the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God claims priority in what we are. That's true not just at the individual level, it's true at the species level as well as we see in our text here. Look with me again at John chapter 1 verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus isn't part of creation. He's called the firstborn in Colossians, talking about his right to inheritance, but not because he's a part of it. All things that were made were made through him. 
In the context, it's underscoring not just that God the Father is a creator, we often talk about the Father as a creator, but how does he create? He created through his Son. The Father decrees and then the Son acts by the Spirit. That's underscored again in Colossians 1, verse 16. I don't ask you to turn there. Just hear what this says about Jesus and his relationship to you. Colossians 1, verse 16, speaking of Jesus, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and, importantly, for him. This morning, the Holy Spirit declares it to you. Receive it. The Holy Spirit declares to you through his word, you are a creation of and for Christ. That is the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be human, is to be a creation of, to be a creation for Christ. And if you think any differently, your life will be shaped differently. But what would it mean for you on an hourly basis, on a moment-by-moment basis as you mature in the way that you think, to come back to that thought, I am not my own. I am not my own. I was made. And I was made for a purpose. I'm here by the will of another. I'm here living in the generosity of another. It matters to begin at this point that we are creations, and yet it is a point that obviously, according to the enemy's work, and the fleshly will of man is absolutely in the crosshairs of our society. People would rather think that they are utterly meaningless than to believe that there is one who stands over them to tell them what they must be. Now, as we consider this doctrine, we're going to look at it under two main headings. The first is going to be simply why you should regard yourself as a creation. I'm not unaware, because I have had the struggle myself, that you may at times wonder, is that true? People I hold as intelligent, educated, tell me the opposite. Or you are trying to have that conversation with others. I want to provide you with three reasons why you should believe that. Why you should regard yourself as a creation. And then secondly, what difference does it make practically? How does this shape us? Let's begin right away then with the first main heading. Why should you regard yourself as a creation of God? Why should you regard yourself that way? The first of these three reasons is simply this. And this holds great value for the Christian. I acknowledge that the outsider, the unbeliever, will struggle with this. It is the clear doctrine of Scripture. But here we are in a church. And we must reckon that as the highest priority. Even before we talk about reason or experience, we have reasons for believing that the Scripture is reliable. Having received the Scriptures as reliable, what does it say? And it declares very plainly all throughout, I don't have to give you a bunch of verses if you have been present at all. As a Christian, you are familiar. We are creations. Think about Genesis chapter 1, where it lays out the creation of the world. Now I'll tell you, when you think about the audience for whom it was written approximately 3,500 years ago, I will tell you I am not persuaded that the intention in terms of the style of Genesis chapter 1 was to provide for us a textbook of the precise process by which God made things. It says that he says to the land, bring forth living things. And then he goes to Adam, and it says that he formed him from the clay. Even if God chose to reveal to us the precise means by which he did that, I don't think we would grasp it. Nor was it the purpose. The function of Genesis chapter 1 is to be a polemic, an argument. An argument. And it's a powerful one. It's the argument that gives explanation to the first of the Ten Commandments. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? 
you shall have no other gods before me. In the culture that the Jews were in, where they had been delivered out of the pantheon of false gods in Egypt, there was a claim that, oh, you know, there are all kinds of gods, and maybe even particular gods created particular nationalities of people. That was a common belief in the ancient world, where they think, oh, you know, uh, this Roman people, they were created by these ones, and those people up north of them, the Germans, they were created by other gods, and that explains their inferiority, because the German gods are weaker, and so we Romans are better. What you think humans are will have a shape upon you. Genesis 1 makes very, very clear one personal God made it all. One personal God made it all, and he claims us as his own. And by implication, that means it's not left to an irrational process. God doesn't just provide the conditions and then step back and see what happens. But he claims direct oversight, even as we'll see in the next sermon, special involvement in the way that he creates human beings. Special design and purposing. This is a clear teaching of scripture, as it says in Psalm 104, 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. Note, not chance. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So the first reason the scripture declares it, and you can't give up the doctrine of creation, of a personal designer, of one who has given us all that we have, without dispensing with scripture as a whole. The second is that I believe that this is the more reasonable of the views. That is not to say, when I say it's the more reasonable view, to believe that we are created versus believing we are not created. That doesn't mean that we can answer every kind of question that may be asked. God has not seen fit to tell us all of that. But for a long time, we have not sufficiently queried, we have not sufficiently asked the opposing side questions because they have gaps as well. They are often allowed to bowl through But we have to recognize, I believe, that this is the more reasonable position. Start with the fact that you are contingent. And I know that there are some here who may not be familiar with that word. I'm thinking of my own children, other young ones here. You don't know what it means to be contingent. I'll tell you. Something is contingent when it needs something else in order to be. So, for instance, a cheese sandwich. A great example of something contingent. You can't have a cheese sandwich unless you first have the bread. And somebody who made the bread... And before that, you had to have the wheat growing in the field. Human beings are at least as contingent as a cheese sandwich. As I said before, you would not be here if you didn't have parents. And your parents wouldn't be here if they didn't have parents. And they wouldn't be here if there wasn't air and water and ground and space. And the stuff we don't see that we broadly describe as space, which is not empty, but is the matrix of all created being as we know it. The invisible stuff, the mesh upon which, so to speak, all reality that we interact with exists. Trace contingency back and eventually you arrive at a necessity. You arrive at the necessity of a kind of being. A kind of being which has the same attributes which we ascribe in scripture to God. Beings like eternality. Truly standing outside of time. Outside of an organized chain of events there has to be what philosophy is sometimes called a prime mover who stands outside of time a person who can will one who brings these things into being one who has all knowledge one who has all power take Justin I I won't belabor it because I've spoken of it recently but just making the jump to organic life 
Don't let that slip away. It's one thing often in, in talks with people who do not believe the world was created. They'll talk about the development, the adaptation, the transformation of living things over time. All right. But that's entirely different in avoiding of the question, how did life come into being? It's an immense problem that science has not yet at all addressed with anything to satisfy many people who deal at a level of math that I can't even pretend to understand. It's the problem sometimes called the problem of abiogenesis, that life comes from nothing. The simplest manufactured cell at this time, and I say manufactured because it was basically parted together from other existing genes. We can't create life from nothing, but we can take existing genes and splice them. The simplest cell at this point has 429 genes. Dozens of them are mutually necessary, and if both parts aren't there in the right sequence, the gene will not live, or the cell will not live. It is an act of faith. It is an act of faith for the person who does not believe in a creator to believe that somehow everything, so much information, was packed together in the right order from the beginning. It's a huge leap. It takes faith. Occam's razor slices thin. Occam's razor is the idea that the simplest solution is usually the right solution. Here, the simplest solution is that something intelligent accounts for the information. Somebody may object at this point, or you may hear the objection. You are just using a God of the gaps argument. A God of the gaps argument says that religion just fills God into the gap where science hasn't yet provided the answer. We haven't yet solved that, but we'll get around to it. So for now, we've got God sitting in the gap there. But once we answer that question of abiogenesis, etc., then we get rid of God. I would like to respond, no, this is not a God of the gaps argument. We are not simply using faith in God to fill in the gap for something that empirical sciences, hard sciences, mathematical sciences, are going to fill in later. Because they can't. They can't. And this is what the world wall is in, that it looks, and it's, I'm speaking from my perspective, but I believe it's the one of scripture. People desire so badly to be autonomous that they will swallow the bait with the hook. And they will simply not ask the questions. They'll look at the system and say, well, smart people, smart people, they said this. That they will do something very foolish, unwise, and not ask, has the more important question been addressed? There are categories that the hard sciences can never touch. Let me give you an example of this. Do good and evil. And when I say good and evil, I'm not going to say all the nasty, horrendous things that I know some of you adults are aware of. But take the most vile acts that you have heard that you still try at times to bury in your mind because they happen every day, sometimes in this very city, in dark places. Are they truly evil? Or is that merely a biological impression that furthers us in our survival but has no more meaning than if a rock rolled down a hillside? Is there an objective, real difference between good and evil? Where did it come from? Who dictates it? To put it differently, who says who says? Who gets to say what the rules are? When you subscribe entirely 
to letting empirical science dictate what a human being is, you give up humanity, you dehumanize. Because there are aspects of humanity that can only be explained in terms of soul, that can only be explained in terms of a transcendent moral reality. Take human rights. The concept of human rights was not present in the pagan world where Christianity cut its teeth. Western society, as you experience it, owes Christ and Christianity for this concept that all human beings have inherent dignity because it comes from outside of this system. If it came from within this system, if it evolved in the system, if it was conferred by uh, an organization, a government, then it can be taken away. For human rights, dignity, meaning, purpose to have absolute real value, there must be something absolute, concrete, fixed to which everything is related. If it's all relative, nothing has meaning. Christianity adequately addresses those questions. The world does not, and so they just look away. And they want to have our toys and their toys. The idea that we have meaning, that's our toy. God has given it to us. Because we believe he is and that we are creations. The third reason we believe this is because God bears witness in our hearts concerning it. Later in John, in fact, if you want to look at me, John chapter 16, verse 8, you'll see how Jesus addresses this. So it's a thing that we know by experience. It's not just rational. It's reasonable and according to experience. John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus is speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And if they don't believe in Christ, they are still in their sin. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. He's gone there because he's going to fulfill a role as the judge. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Christ has worked in your heart. That's not a thing that you can prove or explain perfectly to outsiders, but it's for you. That you've experienced conviction. And the only way that you can walk away from that is to say, all of that was just in my head. You must have something very wonderful in your head that drives you to righteousness and drives you to honor that which is above and beyond us. Somebody might say, but I've never experienced that. I plead with you to recognize, if you don't have any clue what I'm talking about, the work of the Holy Spirit convicting you, I cannot do in you what you need. The Bible tells us that owing to sin owing to the curse that comes with loving what is evil, according to Romans 1, man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that certain things cannot be known. It's that we do not want to know them. And let me ask you, hypothetically, if there is a God to whom you are absolutely morally accountable, who would require you to reshape your whole life, starting above all with that sense that you are free to do as you will in every way, Do you actually want to know and serve that God? The idea that there is this being who is infinite in goodness and holiness, do you want to know? If you do, then I would tell you God is working in your heart. Ask him to make himself known to you. Acts 17 says that God desires that we would seek him and find him. But if you don't desire it, why would you hold it against God? If you can say, well, I wouldn't want to know. I don't want anything to do with him. His judgment is perfectly just to not speak to you. He's spoken through his word, and if you won't receive that, then we can do nothing for you. The very possibility 
which is evident all around us as a reality, that we are contingent and therefore there is an infinite being, screams to you, screams to you, prioritize him. And so this is our experience. These are reasons why we should regard ourselves as creatures. More could be added. We won't this morning. I want to turn instead to the final idea here, the final main point. What difference does it make? I don't want to set before you simply three ideas, ways that this will shape your life and the life of others. The first is this. Seeing yourself as the creation of God and for God, of Christ and for Christ, does that not compel humility? Does that not compel gratitude? Think about it for a moment. You not only owe your existence, I don't just mean that you began at a point in time, but I mean even at this point, that I'm no physicist or the son of a physicist, but that things are vibrating in such a way that you have being. You can't take credit for that. That's the Lord's doing. But not only that, every pleasurable experience you've had or will have, those come from his genius and his providence. Think of some of the meals you've had in your life. There are some I still think about from 20 years ago. I hear that you are thinking that too. Is that not a reason for gratitude? Those flavor compounds, that's not chance. He made us to like things and then he brought us together with those things. The same is even more true in terms of relationship. The sweet feeling of holding a little child's hand. Whose design? Who has crafted the world in this way? It compels humility and gratitude. John 1, again, our main text, John 1, verses 3 and 4, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But without him, had he willed otherwise, there would be no light. There would be no life. The second difference that it makes is that it compels from us obedience. And I don't just mean that at one point in your life you learn that you ought to be obedient. We all have learned that lesson factually, intellectually. I mean when you meditate on this on a daily basis, when you come back to it, when you say, whether aloud or in your heart, I am God's creation. I am created for him. Then what does that mean? What does it mean in terms of your duty to submit to him? The prophet Isaiah gives undoubtedly the best analogy of this when he speaks about a potter forming a clay pot. Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to those who quarrel with or argue with their maker. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Really? Imagine as you were making your dinner, and you add the spices, and the spices speak back and say, Wrong amounts. I'm eating you. You have no say in this. You're mine. How much more God who created us, as it says in Romans 9, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? You live in God's world. I live in God's world. Not the other way around. He's not a supporting actor in a movie that you are starring in. We each have a bit part in his glorious story, in the story of Christ making much of his grace or much of his justice. We will each play our role in that. But that compels from us a certain amount of obedience and submission to ask, Lord, if you are fashioning me, what do you desire me to be? If you want to shape me like a hammer, where are the nails? If you want to shape me like a vase, where are the flowers? And to accept what you have been made to be. 
you will find greatest joy when you do that. Third, and perhaps somewhat ironically, to acknowledge that you are a creation. This is our final point here, our final idea of why it changes things or benefits us. To acknowledge that you are a creation, a mere creation, ironically provides the basis for having human dignity and purpose. I've already stated that. If we relate to a God who is absolute, then we have a fixed point, an anchor from which we can base every other choice that we have. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon our brother Stan Way, Pastor Stan Way. He says it this way. A right understanding of man, then, is gained only when he is considered in relation to God. Man, when considered from any other vantage point, is stripped of his dignity and left bankrupt of any substantial significance. Why do we have value? Because our creator has chosen to value us. Many people try to cram into this one brief, often miserable existence a whole eternity's worth of meaning, and they die miserable as a consequence, feeling empty. People who even seem to have it all in their life, when they realize this one life is so brief and they lived it for themselves, it is empty. Mark Twain, whose true name was Samuel Clemens, put it this way. He wrote this in his autobiography shortly before he died. In his time, rich, famous, friend of presidents, everyone thought he was funny, which is what everybody seems to want. And he says, at length, my ambition is dead. Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. Longing for release has come in their place. It comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they have no sign left that they ever even existed, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. He had that sealed and no one was allowed to read it for over 100 years. That's what he thought about himself. By contrast, hear these words and then let's close in prayer. John 1, again, verses 9 through 13. The gospel of Christ's advent says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If he had wanted, he could pass by all for judgment. Christ has come into the world to redeem, to make sons of God. And being God and being man, then there is one who is a self-made man. Only one who can possibly redeem us for what we were made for. One creator to save a creation. Let's ask him to help us to respond in this way. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your word. We thank you for having placed us in this world. We ask that you would please drive back errors and affections that are corrupt in our heart where we would seek to live apart from you when in truth you are the source of all beauty, truth, and goodness. We have not been generous to you, Lord, but you are generous to us. We thank you for Christ, our wonderful Savior. We thank you that God has become man and that he has been for us exactly what we ought to be. We thank you that though creator, he submitted to live a life as though creation. 
Our Father, we thank you that through his righteousness we are counted right. Help us to live even as he lives. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.